When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Gideon Rackman, the foreign affairs journalist and author, discusses Vladimir Putin and his new book, The Age of the Strongman. Gideon Rackman is Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Financial Times. His books include Zero Sum Future, which looked at the forces of globalization in a world dominated by superpowers, and Easternization, which charted the rise of Asia as a region to be reckoned with in geopolitics. His new book, The Age of the Strongman, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World, focuses on how we have arrived in an era in which figures from Xi Jinping to Jair Bolsonaro, and of course Vladimir Putin, have managed to ascend to power and stay there. Hosting the discussion is Carl Miller, Research Director at the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos. Here's Carl with more. I'm so delighted to welcome Gideon to this talk. I've been I've been looking forward to it for so long. Let's begin at the beginning, I suppose, with the with the emergence of the age of the strongman. So when did this when did this kind of uh, historical epoch, I suppose, begin to creep into world affairs? Well, almost too neatly, you could pinpoint the very beginning of the century because Putin comes to power on the 31st of December 1999. But I think it takes a while for the strongman phenomenon to gather momentum and to be recognized. I think initially, the way Putin portrays himself and is regarded in the West is as a Democrat. As Clinton says, he's the guy, he meets him in in the Kremlin in March 2000 and says, this is the man who will complete Russia's transition to democracy. And Putin speaks a kind of democratic language at the time. I think he only really begins to emerge as something else. Well, I suppose you could you could if you wanted to if you were paying close attention, you could look at the Chechen war, the prosecution of people like Khodorkovsky quite early on. But he changes his rhetoric in two thousand and seven with a big speech in Munich where he really breaks with the West and announces that Russia is not happy with the post Cold War settlement. But then for a while he looks like a kind of anomaly. Angela Merkel says this is a guy from the 19th century struggling to to exist in the 21st century. He seems like a kind of an anachronism. It's only really then becomes apparent, I think, over the next 10 years, 
that actually there's a whole lot of people rather like Putin who are emerging, who are these strongman figures, highly personalized, authoritarian, illiberal, nationalistic, traditionalist, often with an undercurrent of violence now made explicit in Ukraine. So just to run you through the, the roster, you know, in 2003, Erdogan had come to power in Turkey, but he too was initially seen as a liberal democratic reformer. That becomes apparent that's not the case. He's also still there after 20 years. Xi Jinping in 2012 in China, crucial figure, because again, the West gets it wrong. They say, this is guys, he's going to be a liberalizer. He's going to be a Democrat. Not at all. He centralizes power. And crucially, he does what a lot of these people do, which is create a cult of personality. He uh, actually gets his thought incorporated into the Chinese constitution. He also abolishes term limits on his presidency, which is something both Putin and Erdogan does. And then and you have Modi in India in 2014, and then 2016, the big year when Trump wins in the US. And suddenly we find that this style of leadership, which we had thought sort of alien to the West, actually is in the world's largest democracy. And then you get a, a raft of Trump imitators, most obviously Bolsonaro in Brazil, who wins in 2018. And there are a few others who I could name. But that's basically the chronology of it and this emerging style, which now perhaps reaches a culmination with the invasion of Ukraine. And this star, Gideon, this kind of bundle of attributes that, that the strong man have. Can, can, you, can you dwell on that for a moment with us and kind of and begin to unpack what they all are? Because they're, they're quite different, aren't they? There's like some kind of aspects of leadership, some aspects of politics and ideology, yeah. some, some kind of things that they hate, some things that they love. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things that was interesting for me in the book was to see that these different traits were playing out in very different political systems. Because, you know, I think a valid question to ask about a book like this is, can you really compare Xi Jinping with a leader like Orban in Hungary, or even Boris Johnson makes it into the book? Because I think he has elements of this, although he's, you know, uh, at the far sort of end of it. But yes, I think you can. And so I think, first of all, you've got to start with the personality-driven politics. I think the best summation of it was when Trump said to the 2016 Republican convention, I alone can do it. And that's sort of the claim of all of these leaders, that you need me specifically. This isn't a program or a. it's about a, a strongman figure who is capable of taking the tough decisions. Because again, in terms of their political pictures, they tend to be people who say the country is facing a catastrophe, which is why you need a strong man. So Trump speaks about American carnage and make America great again is his pitch. And that's, I think, the second aspect which justifies the strongman style is a kind of nostalgic nationalism. So that, you know, if Trump's program is make America great again, well, Xi Jinping talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Putin's justification for what he's doing right now is that Russia was in danger of losing its great power status, had to do something dramatic to, to uh, pull things around. Modi sort of harkens back to an era of, of Hindu greatness before the British Empire, but even before the Mughal Empire. And it's a sort of make India great again, make Hindus great again. And even in his own way, Boris Johnson's Global Britain is sort of saying, look, we don't just have to be a member of a 27, 28 member club in the EU. We can strike out alone. We can be Great Britain again. And so there's that sort of nostalgic nationalism. And then I think uh, along with that comes 
if when you combine the idea of a crisis and the personalism, there's a willingness to break the rules. There's a, a, an argument that the system is rigged against you, the little guy, by this globalist elite, which isn't loyal to the nation. And to, to get things done, you need to, to break the crockery. You need to do things such like Trump said, you know, build the wall, ban all Muslims from, from entering the United States, really dramatic stuff, even if it's illegal because we're in such danger that we can't afford to play by these kind of globalist rules. And, you know, finally, uh, another thing I think to look at is deep sort of social conservatism, because part of this illiberalism is the argument that these globalist elites are imposing sort of crazy alien values. And so one of the reasons that I think Trump, uh, sorry, Putin finds an audience in the West is he catches on to disquiet about feminism, disquiet about trans rights, and becomes the champion of people, say, in the United States, who say, well, at last, here's a leader who's saying, saying it like it is, who isn't uh, captive to what Orban calls crazed gender ideology. And that kind of stuff really matters. It, it's a traditionalist appeal. It's a very macho appeal. And it has an undercurrent of violence in it as well. Is there a consistency in how strong men, politicians kind of construct the kind of end Enemy because because it seemed to me that very often you know there's this idea of the deep state or the idea of a kind of lurk, lurking conspiracy just just in the peripheral vision is that is that a kind of consistent attribute that you see in how they kind of build um, essentially a sense of threat I think in many cases that that, they, that only they can step into avert or or defend the country against yeah I think so they they are actually often conspiracy theorists and often I think come to believe their own conspiracy theories you know I used to think that uh, conspiracy theories were something that only the powerless took refuge in and that people actually running countries knew that of course these conspiracies were nonsense but actually if you look at Erdogan he is a massive conspiracy theorist is always talking about plots against Turkey in the West. And interestingly, the figure that a lot of these leaders have lighted upon as the enemy is George Soros, because he ticks a lot of boxes. He's rich, he's Jewish, he's a banker, so he trades with money, you know, rather than uh, doing something physical with his hands. He's a liberal internationalist, and he is involved in politics. He funds things like the Open Society Institute, often things that they don't like, like NGOs that make life difficult for you, that protect the rights of minorities or protect the press. And so he has become denounced. And this is a interesting thing is that these guys pick up rhetoric from each other. So I don't know where that, well, actually, I do know where the Soros conspiracy theories start, probably in Russia. It's when they start cracking down on some of the Soros-based NGOs. It's Russia's the first place he's closed down. But then it spreads to, to the United States. I think Soros's role in funding opposition to the Iraq war. He then becomes a bogey figure for the American right. It's picked up in Turkey, where Erdogan talks about Soros as the, the hidden enemy. He also has a few people, Gulen, a few homegrown enemies uh, who, who are said to be sometimes in league with Soros. Orban, in his famous 2015 campaign against migrants, talks about a Soros plan, that it's George Soros who's trying to take away the uh, Russian nationhood. He's like the sort of Emmanuel Goldstein in 1984 or, you know, or, or, or the Rothschilds. And indeed, lately, people have been linking. The Soros have kind of made a comeback in conspiracy theories. Nobody talked about them for a while, and now they're back. But they're often, they're kind of Soros style, a bit global, a bit sort of Jewish, a bit rich, and sort of 
popping up all over the place and therefore very convenient enemy for these strongman leaders. The Chinese have a slightly different thing. I don't think they've been they picked up on the anti-Soros stuff, but they are they ha- do share with Putin. Uh, Xi and Putin share a belief that America is sponsor- attempting to overthrow their governments. So in the joint statement they issued on February the 4th, just three weeks before the invasion, they talk about American-sponsored color revolutions around the world. So Putin sees a hidden American hand in Ukraine. Xi sees a hidden American hand in, in Hong Kong. D- despite these figures emerging out of kind of different political traditions and, of course, constituencies and arenas all over the world. Are they united in essentially wanting to kind of throw off the yoke of globalist liberal democracy and and essentially like the, the post kind of Second World War political, like geopolitical order? Yeah, although from different starting points, so that, again, China's terribly important, but it is a slight outrider because it has its own grievances and its own very distinct political culture. But so I think that the Chinese are probably among globalizations or were among globalizations last defenders because it was so unarguably beneficial to China. You know, that's what has transformed the country, international trade, foreign investment and so on. So they didn't really buy into the Trumpian anti-globalization rhetoric. But there are other aspects of the world order that they don't like, which is above all, it's American domination as they see it. They believe that America or the West is trying to impose liberal values on them. So they were among the first to start arguing alongside the Russians that, you know what, there isn't a set of universal values as preached by the West that we all need to buy into. We should, we're should we separate civilizations. The Chinese, the Russians, the Turks, start the Indians actually to a degree, start talking the language of civilization, separate civilizations, uh, which should be left alone to get on with things their own way. So so that is a sort of pushback against a liberal world order. The, the liberalism may be appropriate for you, but it's not appropriate for us. Then there's the economic aspect, which is the, the globalization aspect, which tends to be more latched on actually in the West, where there is a bigger constituency of people who feel that their lives have been going backwards and that there's the, the, the economic system is rigged against them for for whom that makes sense. And obviously, uh, Trump appeals to that group. I think in the West, it's very, very noticeable that the populist kind of insurgents who tend to vote for strongmen or produce strongmen are based outside the big cities. And, and typically, their constituency is less well-educated. Uh, Trump says at some point, we love the poorly educated because they're sort of flocking to his banner. And I think in France right now, it's been calculated that there's actually a kind of numerical connection you can show between distance from a train station and support for the, the what used to be the Front National, the, for Le Pen. So it's, it's the sort of cut off the people who are doing badly economically who are very susceptible to this argument that, you know what, things were better before all this globalization before we were getting all our goods from China and the jobs went. And of course, it's not a ridiculous argument. I mean, I think that there have been big winners from globalization, but also losers. All right. Well, there's one strong man, of course, that we have to think about and and worry about indeed, perhaps more more now than, than almost any other point I can certainly remember. There's a very arresting moment in the book where you physically in the room with Vladimir Putin and you say he kind of radiates this kind of quiet menace 
What what was it like? What 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 is Putin like in the in the flesh? Well, it was a long time ago. It was 2009. And, uh, you know, perhaps tellingly, you know, it's a bit of a cliche for journalists to be at Davos, but it was interesting that Putin was at Davos because at that point, and this is even a year after the attack on Georgia, two years after the Munich speech, he's still a member of the club, literally. You know, he's invited, he gives speeches, he's courting investment bankers, Russian oligarchs are throwing the best parties at Davos and so on. So for all he's done, he sees a point in sitting down with a group of largely Western journalists there were probably like 20 of us. And he was initially polite, but but a bit bored. You know, he was kind of going through the motions. And then I can't even remember what it was that provoked him. Uh, either it was a question he didn't like or just he was deciding to have some fun with somebody. But somebody, an American guy, asked him a question he didn't like. And he said, well, that's a very interesting question. But before I answer it, could I just ask you about that extraordinary ring you're wearing on your finger? And so we all kind of turn around and indeed, this guy has a big ring on his finger. And then Putin says, oh, surely you don't mind me asking about that because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be wearing something like that unless you were deliberately trying to draw attention to yourself. And, you know, at which point everyone in sort of laughs along with the bully and, uh, and the question is forgotten, the guy's squirming a bit. And it was very, it was almost like a, you felt this guy's learned this technique somewhere. You know, he's, he, it was a kind of creepy intelligence operative slash bully thing to do. And I'd for, almost forgotten about it. And then I saw him do it again just before the uh, war in Ukraine, where if you remember, he has this famous meeting, which is televised, we all see with, with his National Security Council. And there is this ostensibly scary Securocrat Narishkin, who runs the uh, the intelligence services, who is asked about Putin's plans for the recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk, and is clearly uncomfortable and and sort of gets flubs his line slightly. And Putin does this thing again of deliberately humiliating somebody in front of an audience, which I'd seen him do back you know a decade before. So yeah, he is somebody who enjoys radiating power, who enjoys radiating menace. And, and that is unusual in a world leader. Normally, they try to, at least uh, initially, to, to be a bit seductive or to be impressive, not to come across like a thug, uh, whereas I don't think Putin minds doing that. I, and you've already touched on, Gideon, this kind of journey that Putin has gone on, that we've all gone on with him in a way, as we've consistently misread or, mis- or misinterpreted Putin and, 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 and saw his early years as one of you know, liberal reform and, and pro-democracy reform. Does that characterise the kind of liberal reception of the early strongman, perhaps, that, 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 that consistently around the world we've, we've, we've misread the emergence of these figures and kind of viewed them as essentially being more similar to liberals than than they ever would have you know that they ever would transpire to be yeah i i think i think so you know going doing the research for the book it was very striking if you looked at the early verdicts of a lot of these leaders how wrong they seem in retrospect and we were making the same mistake again and again i think it was partly a very globalization driven view of the world because there was this sense that that the key to being a successful leader was to open your markets, to uh, you know encourage foreign investment, 
that if a leader did that, then the rest would probably follow. Because if you were going to have a rules-based system at home to encourage investment, well, then you'd have to have independent courts and you'd have to have a democracy. So if people sort of made the right noises economically, we often thought, oh, well, the, the politi- political bit will follow. But to be fair, they often spoke the language of democracy. So I mentioned that Putin's early statements, he talks about, you know, we are going to become a democratic nation. Then Erdogan is, again, a very interesting case, both because of the change in his language and in his reception. He comes to power in 2003, just after 9-11, with the Iraq war looming. And the West is very much, very preoccupied by the Muslim world and very much looking for uh, somebody who can sort of crack the problem of political organization as we see it in the Muslim world. And Erdogan is seized upon as, uh, you know, okay, he's religious, but he's also a Democrat. And he will show that Islam and democracy in the West, it's all compatible. And he is hugely courted by the West. Obama makes his first speech overseas in Turkey. It's said that he speaks to Erdogan in his first two years more than any other foreign leader. And if you read, say, editorials in the New York Times at the at the time, it's all about this guy is this this key figure who's going to show Islam and democracy are compatible. Again, you know, big misreading. By 2012, Erdogan is, you know, clearly an authoritarian leader, has locked mm. up all sorts of people, has moved into a vast presidential palace, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But others, I mean, you know, um, Xi Jinping, again, if you, you look uh, what was written at the time by Western commentators about him, people were saying, well, he's clearly going to be an economic reformer. That's the key to him. And maybe he'll do a bit of political reform as well. That's clearly going to happen. Then Modi in 2014, I got wrong. I mean, that was an interesting one because he already had this very dark record in Gujarat uh, and he had been banned from entering the United States. And there were politics first people, liberals, who said he's too dangerous. I guess my mistake was that, you know, at the FT, we mixed with a lot of business people. And, you know, India was in the doldrums at the time. And a lot of Indian businessmen were saying to me and to others, you know what, Uh, the Gujarat stuff uh, was a decade ago. Look at his record since then. He's basically an economic reformer. He's very dynamic. He's what the country needs. And I wrote a piece saying, you know, he's a risk, but but maybe it's time to take a chance on this guy because India needs a jolt. And, you know, I regret having written that. But uh, but actually, I wasn't alone. Obama uh, contributed an article about Modi to Time magazine in 2015, which was extremely laudatory. Uh, and it's only now, really, that uh, we're looking at what he's doing. And uh, India has been reclassified as partly free by by Freedom House, which uh, because of the extent to which he is rolling back democracy in India. A couple of other examples, Viktor Orban, when he first emerges, he's the hero of the kind of liberal democratic uh, left in in Europe. Uh, He gives a big speech in in 1989 in Budapest about the need to overthrow the Soviet yoke and turn Hungary into a democracy. He's kind of the face of dynamic young liberal Hungary. And now look at him, you know, he is the face of populist nationalism. Uh, So these people change as well. It's not simply that we misread them. Uh, And I think actually I'll finish with Orban on this particular answer because it's an interesting example. So he comes in, he does talk the language of democracy. He is the kind of hero of the urban intelligentsia. Then he loses an election and he thinks, you know, maybe I better come up with a new kind of political platform. And the new, the second Orban is much more nationalistic, much more populist, much more appealing to 
Hungary outside Budapest, um, and and that is the Orban that we that we see today. Insofar as this journey that you're describing there of 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 these politicians, perhaps actually at one point being much more liberal than they became, you know, their emergence as strong men is is there a single or clear kind of explanation for this? I mean, is this simply a question of opportunity and and the presence of power and and and, and greed and their desire to to kind of stay in office? Or is there something else that, that, that they might have commonly experienced which kind of pushes them in this journey towards, you know, becoming full-fledged, kind of uh, uh, fully expressed strongmen? Or were they always that way in... Well, I mean, there's sort of personality question, which maybe we can deal with later, because I mean, I I don't really go into it much in the book, but I'm asked about it a lot. And I think it is an interesting question. Are there certain personality types who come, come forward? But I mean, something I do deal with in the book is... Why does the atmosphere shift? And I, I, you know, the best I can do is I think that there are global political fashions and things that appear permissible and then impermissible. And I think that when Putin, for example, comes to power, it really is the heyday of uh, American power, it's pre 9 11, and of liberal democracy's confidence. It's uh, less than a decade since Fukuyama's published The End of History. There doesn't seem to be another coherent ideology in town. It does feel like what the Americans are saying that, you know, if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to have a system that looks a bit like ours seems right. And then Putin begins to change things by becoming more overtly anti-Western, by becoming more openly authoritarian, locking up his enemies at home, waging mini wars, a very brutal war actually internally in Chechnya and then attacking Georgia and so on. And he creates a different model of leadership, which people initially miss, as I say, and then it begins to establish a fan club. There are people, other leaders around the world who say, you know what, that's kind of uh, cool. I'd quite like to be like that. You know, this guy who's not playing the American game, who is a nationalist, who is doing things differently. And uh, Peskov, his spokesman, says in 2008, I think it is, you know, there's a, there's a people in, are looking around the world for a different style of leader, for, for somebody who is, is more like Putin, and he's the archetype. And other leaders, you know, you could just say, well, that's the Russians talking their own book. But there are other leaders who begin to say this, uh, you know, classically Duterte in the Philippines, who is a real, uh, you know, strongman's probably too polite. He's a bit of a thug. But when he's asked in, in a debate in the Philippines, you know, who is your political hero? And he says, my hero is Putin. Now, it's said with a smirk because it's a deliberately intended to shock but but there's something in it as well. I talked to or some political advisors to Mohammed bin Salman, and they the the Saudi Crown Prince, who in his own way also is um, introduces strongman politics to Saudi Arabia. And you might say, well, you know, it's never democracy. No, it wasn't. But it was a collective leadership. It was a kind of collective royal family that never had a single kind of figure like MBS who who becomes the face of the country. And these advisors said, you know, he's fascinated by Putin. He really admires him. He likes what he's doing. And in the West, you have now famously Marine Le Pen playing kind of ideological footsie with the people around Putin, even taking money from the Russians and having to kind of rip the photo of her with Putin out of her campaign brochure right now. And uh, others like Rudy Giuliani saying, you know, look around the world, what Putin did in Syria, that's what you call leadership. Giuliani is Trump's lawyer. 
Nigel Farage asked, you know, who is who is the politician you most admire around the world? Uh, this is a GQ interview, I think, in 2015. Said Putin. He said, I don't like his politics, mind, but you know what what he did in Syria that was that is was brilliant. You know, and and this comment carries right up to the invasion of Ukraine, like two days before the invasion of Ukraine. Trump is still talking this language. He calls Putin a strategic genius. So there is this sort of yearning for a leader who doesn't play by the rules, who's got a bit of swagger and a bit of devil about him. And that's where Putin becomes this kind of archetype. And I think for their own reasons, a lot of leaders around the world, whether or not they're consciously imitating Putin, take on this this new model of strongman leadership as an alternative to the rather wearying, rules-bound, law-bound, globalization-bound other model that, that's being pushed by kind of the liberals. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Most of us will have a five-year plan. Serious legacy investors will have a 50-year plan. But very few people think about what the world will look like in 500 years. Join Intelligence Squared in partnership with Ytree to debate the motion the world will be a better place in 5, 50 and 500 years. With guests including the sculptor Sir Anthony Gormley, futurist and entrepreneur Mo Gaudat and climate activist Clover Hogan, moderated by the journalist and broadcaster Kamal Ahmed. Register to join us live online Tuesday 3rd of May from 7pm at y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. Last question from me is another element of this kind of archetype that Putin creates, this entirely different kind of relationship between politicians and the truth. Because there's, there's a very arresting phrase in, in your book where you're kind of exploring this relationship between Putin being a genuine nationalist and the kind of front man for, for a kind of completely kleptocratic and corrupt regime. And you say the link between the two is a deep and corrosive cynicism that runs through the Russian leader's approach to politics and life. And I think you're kind of talking about his very sincere commitment to lying mm, there, yeah. uh, perhaps in part. So, so did he also spearhead this kind of, you know, kind of gleeful postmodern dance that, yeah, absolutely. that so many and, autocrats do. And there was something which I didn't put in the book, which I really should have. I put it, put it in the article because I was reminded when a, by a family member, actually, that when I first met Peskov, uh, his spokesman in 2007 or 8, uh, sitting in his office in the Kremlin, and his screensaver on his computer was revolving quotations from 1984. 
I mean, he was trolling us before trolling was a thing. I mean, it was, it was saying <laughs> literally war is peace, you know, uh, freedom is slavery. We're revolving on his computer. So he was kind of laughing at us, but but he was making the point that I know what I'm doing, you know, and yeah, I am twisting the truth. I am creating a different way of looking at things. And yes, I think that that was very, as I said, deep cynicism. I think if they were called upon to justify it, indeed Peskov did when it not, he didn't explicitly say I'm lying, but what he said when I said, you know, tried to call him out on various things the Russians were doing were, was more or less, but you guys do it as well. And I think Putin does sincerely believe this. In his speech just before the Ukraine war, he basically, he, he calls the West the empire of lies because he doesn't, he says, I'm not buying it, guys. You know, you talk the language of human rights, but you invaded Iraq. You know, you lie all the time. So why shouldn't I lie is the sort of, you know, you're no better than, the, than me. But I think, you know, personally, I would say there's a complete different quality to their kinds of lies. I don't actually think for, for all the horrors of uh, some American inventions, interventions around the world that they would ever have, you know, leveled a city like Mariupol and then said it didn't happen. Mm. That, that doesn't actually happen in the West because we have a press that, that can hold people to account. But then, yes, this becomes this creation of an alternative reality becomes very important. And you're the social media person, so I'd be interested to know what your views on this is. But I do think <laughs> that social media are incredibly important in this because what they what it does is it establishes a direct relationship between the leader and the followers. And on Twitter, we have followers. And the leader then can free himself from fact-checking. He doesn't have boring people like me saying, oh, that, that's, that actually didn't happen, or that's not true. He can put out very simple messages that are emotionally appealing. And I say Twitter has followers, and on Facebook, you don't say true or untrue, you say like or dislike. These are appeals to the gut. You know, I like that post. And so they can create a whole alternative reality. And social media was crucial for this. So that the Duterte campaign, he he is also elected in 2016 earlier than Trump and earlier than the Brexit vote, is referred to uh, by some people who study Facebook, I think possibly even within Facebook, as patient zero, because it was the first time that they saw how Facebook could be weaponized by a sort of strongman authoritarian to get often fictitious fake news out there and to create a whole alternative narrative that that supports these people. And interestingly, you know, I say that they always accuse you of doing what they're doing. So the, the term fake news, as far as I know, was originally used by Hillary Clinton about this kind of thing. And then Trump adopts it and anything he dislikes is labeled as fake news. And essentially what he is saying to his followers is believe what you like, literally believe what you like. If you want to believe that Hillary Clinton is running a paedophile parlor from beneath a pizza restaurant, which bizarrely a lot of people did believe to the point that somebody actually attacked the pizza parlor, then fine, you know, I'll put that out there. And Trump had this brilliant way of promoting conspiracy theories. Sometimes he would directly endorse them, but more often he would say, you know, a lot of people are saying and so he would validate these crazy ideas. Trump's campaign starts with a lie, which is the thing that brings him to prominence is the birther thing, that Obama's not born in America. And he offers to, to uh, and therefore is not, uh, shouldn't be president. And that's a classic because it's something people wanted to believe because they, they hated the idea that Obama was president. So maybe you could prove that he wasn't even entitled to be president. He's not even an American because after all, he's black, haven't you noticed? And, and so that kind of thing, he's not an American. 
if you want to believe it, here's here's me saying this stuff that you want to believe. And that's that's been very true for Bolsonaro for for all of these these guys that social media and fake news, real fake news, not the kind they talk about, have been crucial crucial. Well, what a fascinating answer. And yes, I mean, I, I'm going to hold my tongue, even though I have a million more questions to do with information warfare and, and, and online manipulation, of course. But, but instead, I will go to Judy Johnson first. The first question from the audience. Thank you, Judy. She's, uh, she asks here, Gideon, how closely is dogmatism related to authoritarianism? Yeah, uh, well, I think it's very important in the sense that, you know, it's part of the whole liberal style which is to say, well, you know, I kind of see your point, you know, on the one hand, on the other, it's, um, I wouldn't call it dogmatism, I would call it simplism, by which Mm. I mean that these are people who say, you know, the liberals out there are saying it's all very complicated, like Brexit, for example, it's it's complicated that if you do this, there are trade-offs, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? It's not complicated. That's a dogmatic statement. It's also a simplest statement. It's saying you just have to cut through all the bullshit they're giving you and do this thing, this one big thing, and it'll be all right. So in in our case, in the UK, it was Brexit, get Brexit done, you know, whatever. In Trump's, it's often a three-word slogan. It's build a wall. You know, immigration, illegal immigration is a problem. Just build a massive wall, you know, and, and that'll be fine. Or his other one is ban all Muslims from entering the country. But they all, you know, have a simplest, often a rather brutal, in some contexts, solution. So in Duterte's case, it's shoot the drug dealers, essentially, have a war on drugs, you know, and he kills thousands of people. You know, let's not bother with this law and order stuff. Let's just have vigilantes out there. Unleash the police. And in Putin's case, it's, well, you know, I'm fed up with all this trouble with Ukraine. Just use the army. And that's what he does. So there are people who say the world isn't complicated. That's a liberal lie. The world's simple. But you need somebody like me who has the guts to call it like it is and to do what's necessary. And I think that's their basic appeal. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one's from Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, who says, how worried are you about a China-Russia alliance? I see some people say they have a very shallow relationship. Is this true? And I think you actually mentioned getting in your book, the, you know, the actual expansion of China too, kind of into Russia's kind of ambit and kind of uh, sphere of interest. So is it, is it entirely a love affair between the two countries? No, I don't think so. But I think it's pretty close at the moment. And I think it, it is actually an alliance kind of based around strongman politics and shared paranoia. So that these are two big powers that have jointly decided they don't like the US-led world order. Partly that's to do with kind of traditional great power politics. They both want a sphere Mm. of influence. Russia has said, you know, NATO's just got too close. We're pushing back. China similarly says, you know, this area around us should be our sphere of influence. We don't like the fact that America dominates the Pacific Ocean as it does, has since 1945. We're going to claim the whole of the South China Sea. We claim the right to invade Taiwan, you know, to push back against the Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of classic national interest territorial stuff. But then alongside it, there's a paranoia about what they see as sort of democratic expansionism. I I refer to this concern that the West is out to get them. And they believe that this human rights language that Hillary Clinton or whoever most American leaders use is not just some innocuous kind of annoying 
effort to like uh, protect a, a dissident in China or, or to speak out for memorial in Moscow, that actually there's a much more sinister agenda as they see it behind them, and that is to remove them from power. And that by saying essentially your your rule is illegitimate, and uh, you know in Putin's mm. fully developed view, funding the opposition. And the the moment where I think he tips into paranoia about this is really quite early on with the first revolution in Ukraine and then the other color revolutions, 2004, mm. five. And the point is that he shares this paranoia with the Chinese. So if you look at the joint statement that Russia and China issue on February the 4th uh, this year, after the Putin-Xi meeting that really sets up the Ukraine war, there's a long denunciation of American power, but it includes this argument that a, a specific reference to color revolutions, this argument that America is sponsoring color revolutions. And so I think that shared ideological interest underpinned by a common bond between these two guys who are both strongman leaders, who are both centralizing power around themselves. As a Russian analyst, a friend of mine put it, Putin's the czar and she's the emperor. You know, they're, they're going, taking their countries back to a czarist style of rule in Russia, an imperial style of rule in China. So they see something in each other, not just mm. in their countries. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I think, where the bond is. Now, clearly, there are also big underlying potential tensions between China and Russia. I'll, so I'll finish up in a second, such a huge subject. But the, I think the, the Chinese have a big dilemma now. Do they back their pals in Moscow or do they say, you know what, you've made a mistake, guys, we're not going to go full force behind you. And you can argue it either way from their point of view. They could say, you know, of course, we have to back the Russians. They're our only friends. And if we join in Western sanctions, we're actually destroying our friend so that the West can then turn on us. I've heard the Chinese make that argument. Alternatively, they could say, this guy's made a hideous error. Why should we pile in behind them and poison our own relations with the West? So they've got a very difficult dilemma. Before we move on, Gideon, do, do you have any sense of how that is currently playing out in Beijing? I think they were watching and waiting. I think that they they certainly, I, I think a quick victory for Russia would really have suited them. I mean, there are there's a school of thought is that, oh, no, China, you know, doesn't like shifting of, you know, tax on sovereignty. I mean, I think that's, you know, not the case. I think that they their main concern is American global power. So something that looked like Afghanistan too, you know, that you'd had Americans sort of humiliated in Afghanistan and then in Ukraine. Great, because that then sets the stage and maybe gets the Chinese courage up to really have a go at invading Taiwan, which they've been threatening to do for a long time. I think what's happened now must make them think a bit about, well, you know, could we invade Taiwan? Is the West a bit more organized and resilient than we thought? Uh, and, you know, how, how deeply do we go in with the Russians on this? And so I think that although they clearly are not going to join in a Western campaign to isolate Russia, they've made that absolutely clear. And you can see it in votes at the UN. I think at the moment, they're not going to go full force in behind Russia. They're going to wait and see how things pan out before they decide. But incidentally, and, you know, we'll talk about this maybe later, they have their own big problems with, you know, COVID is, is out of control now in Shanghai. Shanghai is locked down. Mm. And, you know, it, you could argue it's a bit of a stretch maybe, but it's Xi Jinping's Ukraine in the sense that this is a policy, zero COVID, that he is closely identified with, that he has made a symbol of his rule and it's going wrong. And, you know, if you're in a strongman system, the strongman's not allowed to make mistakes because the whole idea is in infallibility. You can't replace him because he alone is wise and knows the way to do things. So, you can't reverse out of a mistaken policy because that admits you've made a mistake. Uh, and so you kind of dig into these, these 
these these uh, errors you make well we have we have an absolute deluge of questions ed from brighton thank you very much says what countries are immune to the strongman why does germany have no obvious figure of that ilk great question ed thank you and then what in your opinion is the most effective way for those who oppose strongman style leadership to counter it other than at the ballot box okay germany well great question but i, I think it's because because of hitler to be honest that the germans take this very very seriously and are I hope, immune to it, although, you know, one shouldn't be complacent about anybody. But I remember, you know, a German friend of mine saying that she was watching Trump's 2016 speech to the Republican convention. And she said she began to cry watching it because it reminded her so much of the Hitler speeches that she had been made to watch as a child to inoculate herself against this style of leadership. And I thought, oh, come on, you're being a bit hysterical, you know, whatever. But a, I think she may have more, had more of a point than I realised. Not, but also that it, that that I think for a lot of Germans, you know, they're they're not really up for another Führer for 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 understandable reasons. And I hope that persists. And it sort of created this paradox that we're, you know, if you're a liberal, you're saying you watch the German elections and you say, thank God for the Germans, you know, which is not something mm. anybody said much in the 20th century. But now, you know, you look at this place where you have a civilized debate, where nobody is making these sort of crazy appeals, where people take lying very seriously, they're called out. Now, that Germany has its lunatic fringe, so which is why one shouldn't be too complacent. The AFD, the far left, and things could go wrong in that country. It's not immune, but it's it's like it's had its third booster shot, if you like. Um, the the what was the the second question? Oh yeah, what what should we do? Yeah, I do remember. What should we do if we don't like strongman rule? What 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 should? Uh, apart from at the ballot box. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So look, I don't think there's much you can do, but I don't want to preach passivity. I think be reasonably vigilant. I don't think don't believe it can't happen here. You know, that's what a lot of American liberals thought about the United States. And I think it's, you know, to some extent, what we say in Britain that, you know, I think precisely often it's countries that are overconfident in their own institutions that that maybe see the danger signs too late and believe in institutions. I think that, you know, that that the antidote to strongman personalized politics is a politics of rules and of law and of institutions, and that a belief that healthy societies are not about a genius individual, they're about a system, a mm. system that keeps everybody in control, and that nobody is irreplaceable. It's the system that, that, that you protect, not the individual. The next question might take us somewhere that you've alighted on a couple of times, we haven't had time to uh, dive into detail, and that's France. So I am just going to ask this one by itself, Gideon, because uh, I would love to hear your views on France. So it's, it is, and there are some themes here, men concentrated power and corruption mm. which causes which and isn't it time to let women lead yeah i mean i i think that certainly the whole writing a book about the whole strongman politics did make me think to use another kind of slightly modish word that there is something about sort of toxic masculinity a certain form of it that is uh, represented by these leaders that part of this sometimes is a kind of male backlash thing often the the figures that the they the strongman choose to deride are women you know hillary clinton becomes a hate figure for for the trump camp and salvini who is the would be strongman of italy i remember meeting an italian female politician who said that salvini had waved around a, an inflated sex doll on the stage with her name written on it. You know, that's unbelievably crude masculine chauvinism. The question is, 
I, I don't think that women, however, incapable of being bad or brutal reader, uh, rulers, I, I don't think that they're, they're, they're likely to be in quite this, this way. And I think Marine Le Pen is a, an interesting test case because she might be the first female strongman, if you like, if, if she wins. A couple of things to say about her. Obviously, she is where she is partly because she's part of a, di- a dynasty which was started by a man, by, by her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen. And I think that actually strongman politics is strongly dynastic. If you look at you know, uh, the Trump family or Duterte's daughter's about to become vice president of the Philippines and, and so on. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, but it, but it often has that element. But I think that if you look at Le Pen's pitch in other respects, it is classic strongman stuff. It, there's the nostalgic nationalism. We used to be great. We can't be great again. There's anti-globalism. In fact, she's explicitly said, you know, politics is now a, a battle between nationalists and globalists. She has on occasions den- inevitably denounced George Soros, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of very familiar themes in, in what Le Pen is doing. Thank you, Gideon. And the next question, I think, nicely brings us on to a theme it, it would be good for us to, 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 to look at in the final 10 minutes. And this one is from Jackie Francis. Jackie, I will paraphrase your question, but essentially the question says, what's the, the right liberal response to all of this? So, so, you know, I mean, the picture that you've painted is, is a very powerful one of strong men actually gaining and winning power and, you know, kind of beating the kind of liberal argument. Like, what, what, how, how do we evolve liberals, I suppose, to kind of respond to this kind of new politics? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, my, my, my book might be a bit too fatalistic in, in retrospect, because I don't really answer that question. I sort of end up saying, look, these guys will fail because it's a very flawed model of government. And you, in a sense, you've almost got to wait them out. I, I, that's probably, I think that's probably true, but it, it's, it's not enough of a plan of action. I think that liberals have a dilemma, which they've got to think about very hard, which is that it's easy. I've done the easy part to say these guys are thugs, they're liars, et cetera, et cetera. That's all true. But you've got to answer the question, why are they so popular, at least in democracies? I think the economic bit of it, we can deal with relatively easily. Uh, I mean, not in terms of finding the golden bullet that will fix the economy, but at least recognizing the grievance and saying, yeah, you know, Bits of America were devastated. You know, if you look at the life expectancy of white men, uh, uneducated white men in America, it was actually falling in the last 20 years in the same way that it was falling in the Soviet Union in the 1990s. It was a kind of sign of what the economists Angus Deaton called deaths of despair. And that this was a sign that something really badly wrong was going so going on. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised if it produces an extreme political reaction. And I think that that is a very large part of the answer for liberals is that maybe we became too besotted with what became called neoliberalism, which was, you know, too in turn associated with rampant inequality. It sort of said, you know, trickle down, rising tide will lift all boats, etc. Let's just get growth going. And we didn't worry too much about the distributional effects. And we were probably wrong about that. I think the the other bit that is harder for liberals is migration, immigration, race, because I think that's a really important driver of a lot of this. It's important for Orban. The, I think you know the backlash against open borders is crucial to Brexit. Trump's slogan, after all, is build a wall. These groups these leaders tend to be majoritarians who are not interested in minority rights and who are often either openly racist or sort of flirting with racism. And as a liberal, what do you do with that? 
interesting one. You know, do you say, well, maybe we have had gone too far on the way of open borders, that we do restrict immigration, that we try and take this emotion and channel it into something acceptable? Or do we say, you know what, it's already so closely associated with racism that, and anyway, it's so contrary to the kind of society that we want to promote, which is actually saying, you know, that in some cases that you know, white privilege is, is too entrenched, needs to be taken on, etc., that we need to push hard, hard back in the other direction. That's an interesting argument. And I think that it's one that we've only just begun to, 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 to grapple with, partly because actually the liberal left is under its own form of pressures and is having its own civil wars on these issues. So that, for example, I think another one is, is actually trans rights, where mm. I think, you know, if you get sort of your average sort of Democrat or Labour Party politician of my age, they would say, look, this is the last issue we want to be arguing on. We can see it's a loser for us at the ballot box. You know, maybe we kind of make some concessions on this one, but they have a very powerful lobby which feels very passionately about this. And if they move in that direction, they get whacked from their own side. So um, those are the kinds of dilemmas that liberals are facing, I think. Do, do you see any fragilities or frailties within the strongman kind of model itself that might, Carl asks, hopefully, you know, bring, bring about its kind of downfall or decline? Because, you know, if we look at Putin... Here we have the strong man that's been in power longer than any other. And, and, and you know, for all the death and destruction, obviously, that Putin has caused in Ukraine, I mean, I think the consensus, of course, is that it was a disastrous strategic decision. It's united and galvanised the West. And he's now kind of looks very isolated and trapped and surrounded by people not willing to tell him the truth and almost a victim of his cult of personality as well. Is, is there anything in that that, yeah, that I, might give I, us some hope? I, I think so. I mean, as I, I do think it's a flawed model and I think almost invariably ends up in disaster, actually. And as I said, arguably, we're beginning to see that happen even in China with, with the zero COVID stuff, the sort of trap that they're in there. The difficulty is that how do you get out of it? Because you can recognize that it's it's going badly. But part of the thing is that these guys have abolished checks and balances, have often abolished elections or only hold phony elections. So that the the thing that democracies do have with all their flaws is they have a, a way of, of handling succession. And incidentally, I think that's why strongmen often move towards dynastic politics, because it's a sort of monarchical model where you handle the problem of succession by handing on to your child. Uh, but if you don't have that, what do you do with with a leader who's losing his grip, either because he's getting old? I mean, Erdogan, Putin, and Xi are all in their late 60s, none of them in the best of health. Uh, they will get old. Or who begins to believe their own publicity and make horrible mistakes. But actually getting them out is difficult. You know, there are some of these places where there are still elections. We, you know, people hoped Orban might lose. He didn't. Erdogan faces an election next year. And if it's a clean election, he might well lose because things are going really badly in Turkey. There's rampant inflation. Uh, the economy is in really terrible shape. But then the next question is, if he did lose, and it's a question incidentally with Bolsonaro in Brazil, who faces a presidential election in October, I think, or November. In both these cases- And Modi, of course. Yeah. I think Modi's, Modi's still popular, actually. He's just won a big victory in Uttar Pradesh. But Bolsonaro, I think, might lose and Erdogan might lose. question is, will they respect the results? Bolsonaro is already using Trump-style rhetoric about the, the ballot's going to be rigged and all of that. 
I think another thing that that I think Netanyahu in Israel is an interesting example because he was a kind of strongman leader, and in the end, the Israeli system was just able to evict him after four elections, where eventually they able they, they formed a coalition. Everybody who wanted Netanyahu out, which was so broad that it included the sort of secular socialist Jews, religious Jewish nationalists, and the Muslim Brotherhood, yes. you know, were, were all in this this single coalition that got him out. And so I think that's the other thing is that I think opposition have to recognise that their differences with each other are less significant than the danger presented by the strongman figure, and have to unite around the project of getting rid of the strongman, if it's still possible, if you're in a system where that can be done. Thank you, Gideon. Final question here is from Camilla Redfern. Camilla, thank you so much for your question. It is, how far are the strongmen prepared to go in terms of punitive uh, economic effects against their populations? And I guess more broadly, the pain that their populations in general will feel, accepting they can just blame the leaders of Western democracies. I mean, essentially, are sanctions going to, in any way, help usher Putin from power? I think... Probably not. Um, I, I think that the sanctions in themselves, I, I, well, you know, what, there are various models of how that might work. I think the one where the Russian people are reduced to penury and decide that this guy is really bad news and take to the streets and overthrow him, sort of, you know, 1917 in 2022 or three. I think there's a f- couple of obstacles to that. One is that he controls the media. So as you say, he can say, you know, it's the West that's doing this to you. And it just proves the what I said all along, which is they're our enemy. And, you know, bring along the sort of memories of privation in the 1940s. And we pull together then and we've got to do it now. And some people will buy it. And for the ones who, who don't, you know, actually having a street revolution in Russia, it's not as easy as you might fondly hope. We had a dry run in Belarus next door, which is a very, you know, similar strongman leader, Lukashenko, lost an election. A lot of people took to the streets and they were killed, arrested, driven into exile. He did what was necessary in his own view to keep himself in power. And I think Putin would do the same. I mean, brave people go on demonstrations in Moscow. I was there in 2019 when there were people taken to the streets. But it wasn't like, you know, a protest in Britain. People were having their legs broken literally on the streets. So you've got to be quite brave and you won't even necessarily succeed. So I think if sanctions work... And a political scientists apparently look at transitions in authoritarian regimes and forms of authoritarian regimes. And apparently a palace coup tends to be much more likely than a street revolt. So you've got to hope that it's a group of people around the leadership who get together and say, you know what, time to get rid of the old guy and manage to organize themselves. And even that is very, very difficult because although I'm sure there's discontent in the Russian system, finding each other and organizing and getting the plot in place and getting it to work. Those are difficult things. Well, Gideon, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating, but sadly, a discussion that has to come to an end. So everyone, you've been listening to Gideon Rackman, the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the FT and the author of the brilliant book, The Age of the Strongman, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.